From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. We're now going to talk about leadership with someone whose voice should be familiar to you because he's a CBS military consultant, retired Army Colonel Jeff McCausland. You've written a book called Battle Tested, which is about uh, leadership, including corporate leadership. And there are a lot of books about leadership, but this one is based on your fascination with the Battle of Gettysburg. So tell me why. Well, Dave, it's my firm belief that, you know, good leadership is good leadership, whether that's leading a corporation whether that's leading a military organization, whether that's leading a nonprofit, whether that's being a government official, good leadership is good leadership, and good leadership also stands the test of time. If you look back historically, whether you were leading the Hebrews out of out of Egypt or you were leading uh, Americans during the Civil War or the World War II or right now in a global pandemic, there are certain concepts and, pr- and principles that are immutable. You were dean the of the American Army Civil War College, right? Yeah, exactly right. And I was dean of the War College, and, and people, I think, sometimes misunderstand what we do there. Actually, our primary focus is strategic leadership, taking officers, senior uh, government civilians who have been very successful at what we would call the, the tactical or direct level of leadership or organizational levels of leadership and transforming them or helping them now deal with strategic leadership, which is where their assignments are going. So that's really the primary focus of the course Certainly we talk about warfare, certainly we talk about national security policy, but that's what it's all about. And obviously getting back to your question of what interested me, well, we have here because of the location of the War College, not far from Gaysburg, would uh, annually take the War College students down to the battlefield for a battlefield staff ride. And, and oddly enough, that's one reason why that particular park was established back in the lower, latter part of the 19th century, is to be a place for officers to do that. And having done that with military officers over and over and over, it occurred to me one day, you know, this is just a story in many ways about two organizations involved in a conflict. And I believe in those particular pressure-packed situations of a crisis, good leadership and bad leadership, as I said a few minutes ago, just stick out in bold relief. And you can see them much more clearly, and it serves as a very valuable uh, case study. And I find, last but not least, why do this? Well, because I think people learn best, frankly, from using a story where you can put it into a context. You could write a book on leadership, and there are many of them which are fine, which are broadly conceptual and draw circles and graphs and charts and all kinds of stuff. But I think you have a greater impression on a reader or a listener if you can tie that concept and principle to a story. All I know about the Battle of Gettysburg is, of course, the speech that resulted from it and that the Union won, but at a a very high cost. So give it, give us the thumbnail on why, why you think it's so instructive. Well, first of all, Dave, you got to come out sometime so I can take you my private tour of the Battle of Gettysburg. I'd love so it. You have a standing invitation it. right there. Uh, second of all, I think the Battle of Gettysburg is of great significance because, you know, the United States, we've been involved in far too many wars, sadly, and, and we've fought a whole bunch of battles. We've won a bunch. We've lost some. Uh, but there are really only two battles in which the entire future of the nation hangs in the balance. One is the Battle of Yorktown back in the Revolutionary War. If you lose at Yorktown, we could still be a British colony or part of the Commonwealth of Nations, at least. Uh, and Gettysburg, the future of the nation hangs there uh, in the balance, which makes this so particularly important. And what was the key to victory then? And what role did leadership play in that? What role of leadership playing on that? Well, really on both sides. One on the fact that, uh, frankly, Robert E. Lee, who is well known for his skill as a leader, as an operational commander, and you can admire him for his military leadership, while perhaps not certainly admiring him 
for the cause he fought for. I always point out to people that I always thought Ulysses S. Grant at the end of the Civil War once said of the Confederates when they surrendered, never did better men fight for a worse cause. Mm -hmm. I think that pretty well sums it up. But Robert E. Lee, who had been a very, very successful commander up that point, had run two major victories uh, in the East in the December of 1862 at Fredericksburg and then in May of 1863 at Chancellorsville, now invades the North, frankly trying to win the war. That's what his objective is, defeat the federal army on Union territory, and in so doing, if he's unable to capture Washington, at least tip the scales for the upcoming election, which would occur in 1864. Oddly enough, they paid close attention to presidential elections, too, back in those days. And by the summer of 1863, most Americans believed Abraham Lincoln would lose re-election, and many Republicans even thought Abraham Lincoln would not be renominated to be the standard bearer for the Republican Party. So that's his goal. So he, he is uh, on his way to doing that, and he is conferred on the battlefield of Gettysburg uh, by a new commander, a guy named George Gordon Meade, who is put in command of the Union Army, believe it or not, only two days before the actual battle on the 28th of June, Abraham Lincoln having fired his predecessor, a guy named Fighting Joe Hooker. And in the course of the battle, then, to me, there are numerous incidents of uh, leadership at all levels that one can point to. I'll just point out one at the very end, which is interesting, and that is the night of the 2nd of July. The battle has gone on for two full days. There's been enormous bloodletting, but it's been a stalemate. The Confederates have been unable to decisively push the Yankees off of what's called Cemetery Ridge. Robert E. Lee is frustrated with his commanders. And he spends the night by himself thinking about what he's going to do the next day. And then the next morning rides out to order Peter Longstreet, one of his principal corps commanders, to effect what we call Pickett's Charge. On the other side, this guy, George Gordon Meade, has now been in command a grand total of four days, meets with all his subordinate commanders in a small house there on the edge of the battlefield. And they talk about what they're going to do. And they come up with options. One is to attack. One is to defend. And one is to leave the field and retreat towards Washington. And he discusses that with his principal subordinates. And then he actually takes a vote on uh, from the most junior guy present to the most senior. So the junior guy would not be intimidated by senior people on what they should do. And they determine they are going to, in fact, defend on the next day, which is what they do, setting the stage for this cataclysmic event at the end, which is, of course, known as Pickett's Charge. But a leader on one side obviously isolating himself and making his own choices with no input. Leader on the other side, obviously making his decisive decision for a crisis while getting full input from everybody. But I really believe at the end of the day, Meade actually was going to defend anyway, and there's suggestion that that's what he was all about. So by taking that vote, he got buy-in mm -hmm. from his senior officers, which was very important. And that's the big takeaway quote from your book. Leadership is deciding what has to be done and getting others to want to do it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that quote comes from, of course, Dwight Eisenhower. And I firmly believe a couple of things about it. It's very brief. You can remember that. Number two, of course, it comes from a great leader. People forget not only was Eisenhower president twice and a five-star general, but he was also president of Columbia University in between the time that he would leave the Army and become president. What I really like is that second half of the particular definition, get others to want to do it. And what Ike is suggesting to us wisely is the leader has got to seek to some degree, as time allows and circumstances allow, to get buy-in from the organization if he's going to get max performance. You can order people, you can push them around, but you won't get max performance unless you can get them to kind of buy in the direction that the organization is going.
Now, as I was uh, reading over some of the, the clips from your book, I couldn't help but think of our current leadership in Washington, especially when you talk about uh, character. Um, let's see. Character is even more essential. If your team believes that you are not a person of high character and moral standards, they will never trust that you truly care about them or the fate of the organization. Now, is that is that always true, or are there times where you need to set character aside because w- whatever the leader's character, he's doing the things that you agree with? I think in the longer term, successful organization and sustained success is built on trust in the organization. And I don't think anybody can trust somebody that they don't have a faith in their ethics, their character, their integrity, that they're not as interested in the organization as they are in everybody else. That being said, we all take over organizations, and sometimes shortly after we take over, things will go bad and we've got to make choices, and we haven't built up that trust, which psychologists call idiosyncratic credits, but we have to start making decisions and making them very quickly, particularly in a crisis. And the one thing I've learned about human beings in my time in combat and elsewhere is most people want to be part of the process. They want to at least be heard. And they may not, you know, may not follow their suggestions, but they want to be heard. But when they realize the organization's in a crisis, when they realize the building's on fire or whatever, you can almost, I always believe, pick out who's in charge by just watching everybody's head snap and look at the one person who's in charge, and then they just want to do what he or she tells them to do. Mm-hmm. They have to forego uh, perhaps uh, those idiosyncratic credits, which may have not had the opportunity to build up, just because we got to do that. we got to, we got to get on with this thing, you know. But on the other hand, at the very extreme, if that leader has totally discounted people's trust and confidence, in a crisis, then you have the stage set for the organization to actually fail. And I've seen organizations uh, actually, you know, people just sit down, even in very, very serious moments, and the whole organization collapse because over a longer period of time, it had been established to them that the boss really didn't care about them one way or the other. How do you evaluate character? As somebody who's commanded uh, soldiers in wartime, uh, does it uh, leap out at you? Do you do you have people uh, take a test? I mean, how do you evaluate character? Yeah, it's tough, and this is why you know I always say management, you know, is a science and leadership is an art form, and the two things are related but also distinct. Uh, obviously, the main re- way we measure people's character is by their actions. What do they do? Do they tell the truth? Do they do they make promises and then deliver on the promises? If they don't deliver on the promises, do they then explain to the organization why they didn't deliver on the promise? Uh, basic leadership 101 is to model the action you want to be taking. If you tell everybody that we need to do a certain thing and you are doing something totally contrary to that, well, you're not modeling the, the conduct that you want others to, be, uh, to take because people know what's what's true and what's not you know dave in my time in the military and hopefully we can use this phrase on the radio we had a we had a saying you can't bullshit the truth <laughs> they'll they'll figure it out they, they know whether you really care or not and you can give all the speeches you want to about how much you care about them but they're going to want to know what your actions are you know that's why military officers always eat last that's why military officers make sure the troops are cared for that's why the military officer gets sleep after the men get some sleep that's why you put yourself last in all those environments, just to demonstrate. You can say you care, but it's how you demonstrate that by your actions and how you live up to that that's important. 
And that is the measure of leadership. And that's why it's an art form instead of a science that you can take a test and get a measurement. Jeff, have you ever had to relieve someone of command? Yes. And, and what was that? Certainly like? have. Well, that actually, it's not as difficult as you might think, actually, um, because more often than not, as I said, they, they do things that are so egregious that it's pretty easy. Uh, usually you find by the time you get around to it that you probably should have got around to it sooner. And the one thing, not to be harsh, uh, you want to be a leader of empathy. There's no two ways about it. And put yourself in the position that others are in. But one of the main things I used to admonish young officers is to say, you know, you want to help every soldier. But every soldier, who a person who's working for you, needs to help themselves as well. We, I can help you solve your problems. You're an employee of mine. I can't solve it for you. You've got to be committed as well. And too oftentimes, I found most young officers spent far more time with some individual who just really wasn't interested in his problem. And oftentimes, if he's doing so, he's neglecting the time with the other 98, 99% of the organization that are doing very well that you want to encourage, develop, and take care of them. So by the time you get around to firing somebody, that's when they've usually done something so egregious that it actually becomes pretty easy. Yeah. So there's a problem when a leader, you're saying, gets too involved in trying to to help his people? At, at times, I think you can do so because you have to make a judgment, as I said, does the individual really want to solve the problem? Yeah. I mean, I've seen particularly people I've dealt with, and we, we had all kinds of programs with people who had substance abuse issues. Uh-huh. People can fall into substance, substance abuse issues for a host of reasons, you know, some of which you could say, or, you know, do the youth or stress and strain or hanging out with the wrong people or, or what, whatever. Okay. Uh, but the success of the organization comes at the paramount. And the problem for a leader, as we used to say in the army, is mission first, people always. Mission first, people always. Well, there's a tension there. You know, the success of the organization has to also be paramount. And if we say the values of our organization, whether a military organization, a radio station, or a corporation, is that people who work for us uh, don't violate the law, don't abuse substances, et cetera, et cetera. And then we tolerate somebody who does, even for well-meaning reasons. What we're basically doing, if we're not careful, is sending a message to the entire organization that we says, you know, we said these values are important, but they're not really important. At least they're not important in this case because this person is special. Well, when you do that, you undermine, obviously, that particular value base for the organization. You know, I always use a story, Dave, that illustrates this from the book Moneyball, and that's why I think leadership is fungible. You're out on the West Coast. Most people know about Moneyball, about the Oakland Athletics. Yeah. In the course of that book, the uh, Billy Beam, who's the general manager for the A's, comes up with a whole bunch of new ways to measure the success of baseball players. And he decides on-base percentage is really the most important thing and not batting averages and that kind of stuff. He's got a guy who's leading the American League in on-base percentage. This guy is doing exactly what I want him to do. He is leading the whole, not only the team, he's leading the American League. And then Beams discovers the guy's abusing, uh, abusing steroids, contrary to, to mm-hmm. league regulation, contrary to organizational values. So what does he do? Either A, he can keep the guy on the team because he's doing the best thing I want him to do, or he can get rid of him. And, and that is a real tension. He decides to, fight, to trade the guy, and he does so for a couple of minor league ball players. doesn't admit publicly why he got rid of him. Gets criticized across the baseball world for making a stupid trade. 
But as he goes to the dugout to tell this particular guy he's been traded, he said, you know, doing this is just like shooting old Yeller. <laughs> now, you and I you and I are old enough to recall what that means. Yep. Maybe some of your listeners won't. And I always say to people, if you don't understand that story, watch the old Disney movie, Old Yeller. And if you don't cry when the guy shoots the dog, <laughs> you're, you're the no hardest heart. person I know. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff McCarland is the author of Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. It's co-written with Tom Vossler. Jeff, thanks very much. We'll talk again. Thanks, Dave. Always a pleasure. Oh, I should say, by the way, as of Friday, we had been declared an Amazon bestseller in, in our particular category. They will announce you're a bestseller, okay? Now, that may last 20 minutes until the guy <laughs> in number two. Forever okay. and ever, you can say, I was an Amazon That's bestseller. Right. You know? Good for you. <laughs> I'll stick that in. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Dave. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.